I see uh, experts in Colombia that know much more about the country than I do. <laughs> and I see people that perhaps are not as familiar as with the situation in Colombia. So I will try to uh, put my presentation in, in a level that is uh, interesting for everybody. Mm, the first, the basic topic I want to, to share with you is, uh, of course, transitional justice and the role of constitutional law in the peace process. It's the law faculty, it's a mandatory topic, of course. And behind my presentation, I hope that you will see the importance we Colombians attach to law and justice. This is strange in a, in a country with so much conflict. For a foreigner from outside, it's a country that is in chaos, perhaps. But in reality, law and justice have played, in, traditionally, in Colombia's history, a very important role. And when the peace process arrived, law and justice was very important indeed. A brief anecdote to underline that. When we were in a meeting with the foreign advisors to the president, discussing transitional justice elements because mm, I work in the technical group that negotiated transitional justice, but this group had to report permanently to the political negotiators and to the president. So we were in a meeting, uh, submitting what were the results of the last conversation, and there was a foreign advisor there who after listening to our presentation and of course after listening to the discussion we had had, he told us, I cannot believe that you Colombians attach so much importance to law. <laughs> this is a political issue. <laughs> we must solve it politically. But there we continue, discussing lots of aspects concerning the role of law in building peace and the role of justice in giving legitimacy to a very troublesome peace process <coughs> in Colombia in a very polarized country. Second aspect I want to share, this is very, very, very complex. And all the complexities uh, will be there, you will see them. Perhaps in the discussion we can address elements of this complexity. Uh, I will focus on the legal complexities, not on the political, on the international, on the military, on the cultural, all kind of complexities around this, this process. In my presentation, I will focus first on the basic elements of the very recent context. Very recent is from uh, October last year. <laughs> and then I will focus and move to the basic elements of the transitional justice arrangements we made in Colombia. So basic elements, the sequence of the immediate context. Of course, the peace process started a few years, five years ago, but the final agreement was reached in Colombia, uh, let's say, uh, by September next year. There was a, a plebiscite on this agreement. The plebiscite was authorized by the Constitutional Court, who said there is no need for a plebiscite to ratify the peace agreement, but if the president wants, can call a plebiscite. The plebiscite is only binding on the president, not on anyone else. The plebiscite was lost. The president accepted that the plebiscite was lost, invited the opposition that had won the plebiscite by a very majority, tried to find new arrangements with the opposition, he identified changes in the agreement, went back, sent the negotiators back to Havana, negotiated a new agreement. The president decided that this agreement shouldn't be submitted to a plebiscite, submitted the agreement to Congress for ratification. Congress waited for the Constitutional Court again to say whether there could be a ratification by Congress if previously there had been a vote of the people concerning the agreement. The court said that it was possible on certain conditions. The government fulfilled the conditions, went to Congress for the ratification. The Congress ratified the second peace agreement and therefore the fast track could be applied to adopt implementing legislation and constitutional amendments. This is a short summary. Parallel, in parallel, in parallel, there is disarmament and demobilization. And so, from December 1st, 2016, we have what we call D-Day. D-Day is the beginning of demobilization and disarmament. Disarmament should end in day 180, D plus 180. 
And this demobilization means that FARC groups should go to different places in Colombia, specifically designated, and there they should start giving up their arms. There will be, there has been a monitoring commission uh, for both the ceasefire and the disarmament. In this monitoring commission, there is participation of military, FARC, and the United Nations. And for the disarmament, the role of the United Nations will be a key factor. Last uh, two weeks ago, the whole members, all the members of the Security Council of the United Nations, visited Colombia to oversee how the disarmament was going, because day D plus 150 had arrived, and it was a very important day for uh, the disarmament. Third element, very quickly, Colombia is deeply divided. We have a polarized situation. Uh, this explains why the plebiscite was lost by the president. Nevertheless, international support continues. Uh, there are parallel discourses going on. I think there's a lot of confusion of what is happening. Some say uh, it's crazy that we are amending the constitution to give FARC uh, what FARC wants. Others say it's crazy that FARC, after 50 years of guerrilla, is accepting to go into the system and be judged by Colombian transitional justice, not by an international tribunal that is different from the ordinary uh, judicial system, uh, and there is distrust in both sides, a lot of skepticism, and elections for the President and Congress have already started. And in this very quick presentation, what we have is a debate in Congress and the Constitutional Court concerning transitional justice, which became the core of the peace agreement. So I move quickly to the second topic. What were the problems Colombia had to face when the transitional justice issue arose? First, uh, the framework agreement for the negotiation did not include an express mention of justice. It said that the rights of victims shall be respected, but concerning truth. Justice was not a specific That was five years ago. <laughs> Second element, the Constitution in Colombia has been interpreted by the Constitutional Court to uh, recognize the rights of victims to truth, justice, reparation, and non-repetition. And it's a constitutional rights for victims. So it would have been impossible to advance in the peace process with only a truth commission. There was a need for justice. And the big issue was, how, what kind of justice? How to decide it? Third element of the problem, Colombia has ratified almost uh, every treaty, every human rights treaty, every inter international, human uh, uh, international humanitarian law protocol and convention, and of course, the Statue of Rome concerning uh, the uh, international criminal and therefore, in addition to the constitutional restrictions, there were international standards and restrictions that had to be addressed. Moreover, the criminal justice system was overburdened. Transferring the, all the cases concerning the armed conflict to the ordinary criminal justice system would make it collapse. And on both sides, both guerrilla and military, were not happy that this happened. They prefer something specific for the armed conflict. Justice that was specifically designed to address the criminal uh, uh, facts committed during the armed uh, conflict. In addition to that, uh, we had a previous process with the paramilitary uh, peace and justice law that wa was not well evaluated in the sense that it was not clear what, what really happened. The truth was for some missing. The procedures took too much time since they were based on individual criminal procedures for everyone. And finally, 
the estimates of the volumes of the crimes that should be addressed if really there was a peace agreement with FARC were huge. Just uh, looking at what could come from the armed forces, we were speaking of over 6,000 cases that could go to, uh, had to be investigated. It's two, not counting 50 years of crimes committed by the government. So it was a problem of, of magnitude. In this situation, uh, there was, as, as was mentioned by Daniel, uh, uh, the need to design transitional justice for the peace process in Colombia. And uh, the, the situation was very difficult. If I, if I may mention a second anecdote. When, uh, mm, before the talks concerning transitional justice started, the mandate given by the president was a very prudent and pragmatic mandate. It was, please look at what keeps the parties separate, why it has been impossible to go into transitional justice, and try to found, find some common ground so that we can proceed afterwards. Let's give you a sense of how difficult was the situation. And finally, uh, the special envoy of the United States gave an interview in the Wall Street uh, Journal in which he said that the peace process in Colombia was paralyzed for almost one year and a half because of this issue of transitional justice. So it's to, to highlight the, what were the, the difficulties that uh, had to be addressed. The end result, going to my main topic, the end result was what we call a special jurisdiction for peace. That was the agreement with the guerrilla. A special jurisdiction for peace. Of course, in terms of the negotiation, the tough issue was the following. You have to sign an agreement in which you will agree that you will be judged, condemned, and perhaps sent to jail. That's difficult for a guerrilla group. But the special jurisdiction for peace includes elements that were satisfactory for both parties after very long and intense uh, negotiations. I will describe very quickly how this transitional justice mechanism was designed, and then we can go if you want to answer some questions. The first element is that this transitional justice is <coughs> Colombian justice. It was very important in a country that has a long tradition of judicial review, judicial independence, to have not an international tribunal, but Colombian justice. This special tribunal then uh, has, a special jurisdiction has two levels, and I will go into the chair afterwards. There is a special tribunal for peace, which is at the head of the jurisdiction, the special jurisdiction for peace, and there are chambers that work before the tribunal intervenes. This is the arrangement. These chambers filter cases, and then the most important cases will go to the tribunal. Not all cases, the most important cases. That's the, the structure. What would be the jurisdiction and competence of this special jurisdiction for peace? First, First, in terms of personal jurisdiction, uh, the, the special jurisdiction will have competence over, first, all combatants from every side, FARC and, let's say, the state, on the condition that the armed uh, guerrilla group has signed a peace agreement with the government, which is a case with FARC. That's important because there's another guerrilla group that's still in negotiations, cannot access the special jurisdiction for peace unless there is a peace agreement with the government. Secondly, there can be uh, personal jurisdiction concerning third parties, that is, financiers, that in certain conditions can voluntarily go to this special jurisdiction to have a solution. Also, other agents of the state, not only members of the armed forces, but other state agents which are defined 
in a statute, we're not going into the details, but basically comprise everybody except the President of the Republic, which conserves the basic rules for impeachment that are in our Constitution, continue to be applied to every President or former President. Second, material jurisdiction. The special jurisdiction will have uh, competence over every crime committed in direct or indirect relationship with the armed conflict. That's the criteria. Who will decide that? Every organ of the special jurisdiction has the competence to qualify the relationship. If someone arrives to this jurisdiction and says, listen, I, made a, I committed a crime in indirect relation to the armed conflict, it's for the special jurisdiction to evaluate the situation, the facts, and say, okay, I see a link or I do not see a link. So the special jurisdiction <coughs> determines its competence. Competence, competence is the principle that regulates uh, the functioning of this jurisdiction materially. Temporarily, it was established that previous crimes, that there is no time limit in previous crimes because there are crimes against humanity involved. So it's difficult to establish a time limit going back. But there is a time limit up to 1st December 2016. Crimes committed afterwards are not part of this jurisdiction. This is very important because crimes committed afterwards will go to ordinary jurisdiction with the normal rules. <coughs> We call it, uh, it, it imagine the impact concerning narco-traffic. And we will discuss what are the implications of that. Third, this was called me fourth, in terms of uh, the relationship between the special jurisdiction for peace and the ordinary jurisdiction, there is a principle of prevalence. It means that the special jurisdiction prevails over the ordinary jurisdiction. There may be, in some extreme cases, conflicts of jurisdiction, and there is a mechanism to solve these conflicts of jurisdiction. Basically, three members of the organized jurisdiction, basically the constitutional court, three members of the special jurisdiction will meet in a committee and will decide who has jurisdiction. If there is a tie, the president of the special jurisdiction decides. That's the mechanism to solve these, these conflicts of jurisdiction. These four competence, second element, what types of crimes will go to this special jurisdiction? And so there we must make a division between three kinds of crimes. In, a, in, in, in very general terms, all crimes conflicted in direct or indirect relations to the armed conflict will go there. But, there are different sorts of crimes, of course. So we have first, let's say, the ordinary political crimes of rebellion, sedition. Political crimes in Colombia may receive amnesty. Also, lesser crimes committed in relation, we call it connect, connection, with these political crimes. Let's say, bearing arms wearing uniforms of the armed forces that are exclusively for the armed forces, the explosives. These kind of acts are considered connected to the political crime. But then, and these can receive amnesty. Amnesty in a procedure is difficult, but that in the end, the amnesty is given or confirmed by the special jurisdiction for peace. Second kind of crime, the other extreme, the crimes that cannot receive amnesty, which are crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, grave crimes of war. We define grave crimes of war as those commit as grave infractions against humanitarian law that were committed systematically. In addition to that, torture extrajudicial executions, forced disappearance, acts of sexual violence, forced recruitment of minors, subtraction of minors, 
uh, extrajudicial executions, uh, if I mention it, and of course, uh, uh, torture. So these other grave human rights violations cannot receive an amnesty. So let's say that during the armed conflict, uh, uh, if there was combat and someone tortured and the adversary to know where someone was hiding. Can, uh, can say, factually, it was in connection with the combat, but legally, there is an ipso jury break with the connection and cannot receive amnesty. So it's a strong rule. It's the first time we have that in Colombia. Our tradition was to give amnesties at the end of every other conflict. So this is the other extreme. And in the middle, there are the hard cases. It's not clear where <laughs> a situation will qualify. These hard cases may go one side or the other, depending on the appreciation that will be done by the special jurisdiction for peace. So they will not receive amnesty, ipso jury amnesty, but case by case, there will be an analysis of what happened, in fact, to see whether it's related to just the political crime or whether it is related to one of those crimes that cannot receive amnesty. This is going to be key for the financiers. So let's debate, let's say, narco-traffic. Where is narco-traffic here? So when the opposition says narco-traffic is a way to finance the rebellion, therefore is connected with the political crime, therefore will receive an amnesty. No, <laughs> not necessarily. Why? Because the funding of the guerrilla may also lead to crimes against humanity or crimes of war, and so it will be connected to this other crime, and so it will not receive an amnesty. How to distinguish, how to decide, is very difficult. So there are special rules in the jurisdiction for peace that provide for the following. In essence, for all the crimes related to the financing, which is narcotraffic, illegal mining, all ter terrible things, these crimes uh, will go uh, to a special chamber, and this special chamber can consult a special section of the tribunal for this special section to establish criteria and decide whether it goes to connection with political crime or it goes to connection to crime against humanity. This is on conditions, on the following conditions, which is very important is that for receiving any benefit, any special treatment from this special jurisdiction, it is mandatory to reveal the whole truth. And whole truth means exhaustive and detailed. And concerning these uh, crimes of financing, it means revealing information that is conductive for non-repetition and the reparation of the victims. So, how much, what is implied there? Uh, and, well, another very important element of this special jurisdiction is that there are certain crimes that are uh, a mixture, let's say, of national crimes and international crimes. So, taking of hostages, which cannot be amnesty, and which is a, a huge issue in Colombia, because we had a lot of kidnappings. <coughs> so, taking of hostages cannot be amnesty. So, kidnapping is the criminal, uh, is a crime in Colombia. The name is not hostage taking. <laughs> Afterwards, there was a reform in the criminal code to introduce hostage taking. But the, the traditional name was kidnapping. So what to do there? Or extrajudicial executions. We do not have a crime in our criminal code that says the crime of extrajudicial executions. We have, of course, the crime of murder. <laughs> murder in conditions of uh, defenselessness or murder against uh, a protected person by international humanitarian law. We have all these categories, but not extrajudicial executions. So 
a very complex legal issue <laughs> for lawyers. So to address this very complex legal issue, it was stated in the agreement, and also now in, in the amendment approved in Colombia, that the special jurisdiction for peace may adopt its own qualification of the conduct. And its own qualification of the conduct means that, in practical terms, the, the, the special jurisdiction will add, <laughs> will add what we have in the National Criminal Code in force when the conduct was committed and what was at the international level considered an international crime and must make its own qualification. There cannot be application, a, a retroactive application of the criminal law. Cannot be. It, it should be an addition of what was forbidden by the national criminal laws, inter, uh, qualified in the light of the international standards. <coughs> that was the way to, to address these very difficult issues. Uh, what are the conditions for accessing this jurisdiction, special jurisdiction for peace? On the side of the FARC, of course the condition is signing a peace agreement already done, laying arms, can, those with arms cannot access the jurisdiction, they should disarm first. That's the difficulty in the chronologies I was mentioning at the beginning. Disarm first, as a group and individually, second condition. Third condition, uh, they should be mentioned expressly in a list that is submitted, that should be submitted by a designated representative of FARC. We have a problem in Colombia in most peace processes that those that did not belong to the armed group that signed the peace agreement tried to buy their entrance. <laughs> so here now, here is FARC that will give a list and it's the special representative of FARC that will be the list of its members. Of course, there, are there can be problems there, but there is some control. And this list will be verified by the government. The government has created a committee to verify whether there are more names that there should be in this list. We don't know how it will happen, <laughs> but it's, it's, the second is the judicial system. When the judicial system has already decided that someone belonged to FARC and was perhaps uh, accused or condemned because of that, there there can be also an inclusion to access the special jurisdiction for peace. Second condition is material, of course. The, sh the crime should have direct or indirect relation with the armed conflict. And then there are the conditions for accessing not the special jurisdiction, but accessing the special criminal treatment given by this special jurisdiction. And these conditions are basically two. First, give full truth, as I mentioned. And full truth is defined uh, as exhaustive and detailed. Secondly, as a truth that will be enough to establish accountability. So it's not the truth, the sociological truth or the political truth. It should be truth focusing on what justice needs to <coughs> assign accountability for the crimes committed. Third, it should be a truth that will uh, be the basis for reparation of the victims. And fourth, it should be a truth that will give basis for non-repetition. <coughs> so it's, it's, it's a truth <laughs> that has a lot of dimensions and that the judges will appreciate if, they are, if, the, if the requirements are met. The other condition is do not tell lies. In Colombia, we have a huge debate concerning plea bargaining. So in this special jurisdiction, we do not have plea bargaining. No and in addition, the, if someone gives false testimony or implicates someone 
with a lie, loses completely the access to the special treatment. Mm. So, <coughs> now the structure of the special jurisdiction. You tell me when the structure of the special jurisdiction. So this special jurisdiction has first at the head a tribunal, a special tribunal for peace. This special tribunal is divided in four chambers. There's the chamber of first instance in case of cooperation for, with the uh, special jurisdiction for peace. That is, for anyone that arrives there and says, I recognize, I will give all the truth, this is the truth, please condemn it. <laughs> in this case, there is a chamber for that. We call it the section of recognition of truth and responsibility in the tribunal. There is another section for the cases in which there is no recognition of <coughs> truth and responsibility. Is a trial chamber, if you want. It's the first instance trial chamber. Then there is another section in the tribunal which will decide appeals coming from these two sections I mentioned. And there is a fourth chamber, we call it the revision chamber, which is the chamber in charge of basically trying to fix rules of interpretation concerning all the first stages of the functioning of this special jurisdiction. And secondly, is the special section of the tribunal that will review sentences already rendered by the ordinary jurisdiction. And we'll go into the procedure afterwards. Why is this difficult? Because in Colombia we have a judicial system, a criminal judicial system that has already condemned guerrilleros, <laughs> members of the armed forces, that have been already sentenced. So there is a debate of what to do with these sentences. And one of the instruments provided in this special jurisdiction is that there can be a revision of the sentences given by the ordinary jurisdiction. So this is also a very important function of this revision section of the tribunal. This is the tribunal. Each section has five just judges, Colombian judges, and there can be four additional foreign amicus curia experts that can be invited to discuss in chamber the hard cases, but these foreigners cannot vote. Only the Colombian judges vote on the imposition of the session. This is the top. Before the tribunal starts to work, the tribunal, the, the special jurisdiction will look at all the tsunami of cases that will arrive to this special jurisdiction. A real tsunami. And for handling the tsunami, there are chambers that start working before the trial. These chambers are basically three chambers. First, the amnesty chamber. The amnesty chamber will be in charge of granting amnesties for the cases I mentioned. Second, there is a chamber for defining juridical situations in more complex cases. Let's say members of the military that cannot receive amnesty but committed a lesser crime. These can go to this chamber and have a quick solution. But also members of the guerrilla that cannot receive amnesty well, did it, it not clear that they committed these very hideous crimes, these atrocities, can go also to this chamber that will look at the most difficult cases. But the most important chamber of all is the chamber of recognition of truth and responsibility. This is the chamber that will receive the declarations of recognition of truth and responsibility. How would this work? Basically, the, the Chamber of Recognition of Truth and Responsibility will receive a report from the public prosecutor. This report will have all what the special prosecutor knows about the crimes committed by the guerrilla, plus 
all the sentences containing members of the government. Then we can go up to see the military, but let's <laughs> go by parts. And this basic report will be the basis for this special chamber to start its procedure. This special chamber would then ask the guerrilla collectively, as an organization, now is your turn to recognize the crimes you have committed and to acknowledge truth and give truth. And there, there should be reports to <coughs> by the leaders of the guerrilla concerning all the crimes that the guerrilla committed. And in this collective recognition, there should be also an individualization of those responsible for these crimes, so that there can be individual accountability to them. The report, we don't know how it's going to be made, but we expect that it will be divided in three parts. <laughs> crimes that cannot be amnestied, crimes that can be amnestied, and tough cases. This, we expect that will, this would happen. Then there will be a chance for victims' organizations and human rights organizations to submit reports to the special uh, jurisdiction to be, especially for this Chamber of Recognition of Truth and Responsibility, to complement what were the previous reports. And these will create a basis to determine how to proceed. This special chamber of recognition of truth and responsibility has very important functions of prioritization, determining the most representative cases, establishing the order in which it will proceed, and concentrating its activities on those that are most responsible or the most hideous crimes. This is what should be done. So it starts with a tsunami, and this, to use, continue with this uh, uh, metaphor, with the tsunami, this chamber can say, these, half of these cases go to amnesty, send <laughs> them. These others are very difficult to the chamber of uh, definition of juridical situations. And I will, and the chamber can I will keep these, which are the most terrible crimes against humanity, all the, all the lists I made, and I will start looking into the, those that are most responsible for the commission of these crimes. Most responsible does not mean the, only the chiefs of the, of the guerrilla. Also, for example, those that participated in the actual execution of the crimes. And this chamber can end up with two results. First result is, okay, here we have a situation in which I'd say, these crimes against humanity have been acknowledged. We know who are those that are responsible. We have enough evidence to attribute responsibility individually and to underpark and submit, in this case, we call it the cooperative case, submit a report to the chamber of the, to the section of the tribunal that is responsible for these cases so that there is a sanction in Paris. I will tell you afterwards what kind of sanction in this situation. There can be another situation in which there is a debate. Let's say someone does not recognize a crime, but the victims that have submitted reports say this person is responsible for this crime. In this, this, when there is this disagreement, no cooperation, let's say, the case is sent to what is called the unity for investigation and accusations. And this unity will start, will take the investigation that has already been advanced, may complement this investigation, and may accuse or not accuse this person in the trial chamber of the trial section of the tribunal. So this is an adversarial procedure going in one side, or a cooperative procedure on the other. This is, these are the, the, the procedures. Then, uh, of course, there are a lot of, of, of details I, I, I will jump over. Then comes 
the sentence. So there are three kinds of sentences that can be rendered by the tribunal. All are condemnation sentences or absolutory sentences, of course. These are the, the two options. But in the case of cooperation, the sentence is a sentence of eight years of effective restrictions of liberties accompanied with restorative measures in favor of the rights of the victims. This is the, let's say, the sentence in case of cooperation. For example, of course, I will take the, the hard sock. Someone is condemned for uh, kidnapping, taking off hostages. Crime cannot be amnestied. So this person can be sentenced for eight years of restriction on freedom of residence, freedom of movement, and freedom of work are the three basic liberties that are restricted. And in addition, this person can be condemned to do certain activities in favor of the victims, to repair the victims. For example, participating in programs of demining or participating in programs concerning rebuilding certain areas that were destroyed by the guerrilla. And this sentence is imposed <coughs> by the tribunal in this chair. Let's suppose that someone uh, does not appear. <laughs> He's hiding and does not appear. And at the end, when the chamber of recognition of uh, responsibility and truth uh, is about to render a report to the tribunal, this person appears and says, hey, I, I accept, I participated in this kidnapping. It's late appearance. So no cooperation. Try to play to hide, but when <laughs> perceived that could be caught, said, okay, I'm here. In this situation, it is possible to have a sentence of eight years in prison with certain responsibilities for uh, reparation, but basically ordinary prison. The third kind of sentence is for adversarial procedure. In the adversarial procedure, the sentence is from 15 to 20 years in prison. This is the, the, the basic uh, uh, approach concerning sentence. What are the controls for this jurisdiction? <laughs> so the first one are internal controls. There are rules concerning uh, appeals within the jurisdiction. I don't go into the details. In one, we can look at them. Then there is the possibility of challenging the final decisions of each chamber or each section of the tribunal through constitutional instruments. We have tutela which is a writ of protection for fundamental rights. So there can be a tutela. But there are certain rules to stop tutela from disrupting this work of the special jurisdiction. And these special rules, in essence, uh, want to ensure that only extreme cases where there was a clear violation of fundamental rights that was not corrected by the special jurisdiction will end up in the Constitutional Court, and the Constitutional Court will not invalidate the decision that violated the fundamental right, but will remand to the special jurisdiction for the special jurisdiction to apply the fundamental right and correct the error itself. This is the, the, basically the design. There are also rules concerning the responsibility of the justices of this special jurisdiction. Basically, they can be uh, uh, impeached uh, in Colombia or and in terms of disciplinary measures there is a commission that will look at disciplinary, disciplinary measures. This is, this is a, a, the broad description on how this special jurisdiction for peace may work. Two words concerning non-guerrilla actors. First, third parties. A huge issue because mainly those linked to the paramilitaries already went to the peace and justice jurisdiction. Uh, and it's, it's considered in Colombia uh, a situation that is solved through other instruments. So the paramilitaries 
cannot come here. <laughs> Parameters go other place and have been going other place. But what if there are some third parties that did not belong to the organized uh, uh, illegal armed groups that had some links with crimes committed during that What to do there? It's very tough very controversial issue. So there are two basic principles. The first one is access to these third parties, to this special jurisdiction, is voluntary. Voluntary. Not in the case of, of the guerrilla nor the military. It's, of course, there is a mandatory. Here it's voluntary. And second, this principle of voluntariness <laughs> works in three stages. We call it colloquially three strikes in, not three strikes out, three strikes in. How does it work? Uh, let's suppose that in a, one of those reports I mentioned, a civilian that is a third party is mentioned as someone that, for example, financed. There, there, there are certain rules to, uh, that, that basically say that if finance was given out of coercion, this person was not an author or the victim <laughs> because it was coerced. So that's the first thing. So a clear material rule to solve certain problems. Well, there were the cases in which the money was not given out of coercion, but out of collaboration and interest. In these situations, then comes the second material rule, which is how to distinguish a material rule that distinguishes between those that have a determinant role and those that did not have a determinant role. Those that did not have a determinant role go through to the chamber for the definition of juridical situation. For some, someone said, listen, I was in a zone, everybody paid, I paid both to the paramilitary, to the guerrilla, I want to clear my situation, and of course there will be an investigation, they will look at what the, the public prosecutor has as information, they will check, but in the end, if this is this kind of case, the chamber for defining individual juridical situations can say, okay, you, you, you are clear, we will issue a resolution, you don't have to account for a crime, you paid, <laughs> you paid it. But there can be other situations in which the collaboration was determined, was a key collaboration. And there, uh, it's not that it would go to the tribunal automatically, but there will be an assessment by the Chamber of Recognition of Truth and Responsibility on how effective and important was this participation. And if there are certain rules of evidence, certain, well, certain detailed rules of normal criminal procedure. And in the end, there will be three strikes. <laughs> what are the three strikes? First strike, you are here mentioned, and we have clear suspicion that you did something that was very important. What do you have to say? And so the person can either go or not go to the special jurisdiction, recognize or not recognize. And if we have in, we're in the situation where the person recognizes, it can go relatively easy out with a decision of the chamber for definition of individual situations. But if the person says, I don't accept that, they're saying a lie about me, the person can do that, can defend itself, he or herself, and then wait for what happens. Then comes the second strike, which is after further investigation, let's say further evidence comes from the Office of the Public Prosecutor, further evidence gathered from other sources that are valid in law, this person that said that was innocent happened to have committed really an important, play an important role in a crime that cannot be amnestied. So there, come here again, what do you have to say? And the other person has a right to defend he or herself, and the chamber can say, okay, I'm satisfied, or can say, no, I still will continue, and can get to a third situation, third strike in which it is clear that this person played a very important role, a determinant role. 
In this case, the chamber will ask the tribunal to force this person to go to the special jurisdiction and account for his or her crimes. And there we are in the situation I previously described. Concerning, uh, well, <laughs> concerning uh, uh, the, the members of the armed forces, there will be also to start, uh, like, uh, there can be individual access to this jurisdiction, and this will already start to happen. Uh, and there can be uh, also an access that is determined by policies adopted by the Ministry of Defense. We don't know how it will proceed, it's an open question. But in case of the military, is individual responsibility, not collective. And the treatment is going to be equitable but differentiated from that of the guerrilla. And there are certain special rules that we can go afterwards to analyze what has been the role of a member of the armed forces in one of the crimes I, I mentioned. And the key subject of debate has been uh, responsibility of the superior, commander responsibility. But a huge debate concerning that. We can go into the details afterwards if there, are, there is interest. So just to finish, because I run out of time, uh, and you see it's a very complex thing, <laughs> very complex. Uh, it was a way to, to, to reach a result in which those that were going to sign peace accepted to be judged and content, <laughs> basically. And it was also a situation, an arrangement that was thought not to uh, seek revenge, but to have a justice that could move the country forward to peace. <laughs> it's the balance. Secondly, it's very important, the agreement establishes that all what I have mentioned can only work if the Constitutional Court accepts what I said. <laughs> what I said. In Colombia, the guerrilla, after 50 years of fighting the state and not recognizing the laws of the country nor the constitution, finally accepted that this very important institution of transitional justice should be adopted by Congress, by amendments to the constitution, by statutes, by decrees. This requires a lot of legal instruments. And these instruments should be sent automatically to the constitutional court for judicial review. So it's a situation in which a rebel group finally submits to the judicial system of the country and accepts that the constitution of this country will be applied and they, should, they will respect the final decision of the constitutional court on these matters. It's a paradox, but it's a paradox that shows that in Colombia the role of the judicial system has been very important, and the constitution is very valid and is a reference point to decide on very controversial issues with some basic legitimacy. There was no other solution, and uh, we are in a situation in which those that consider the constitution illegitimate seek in the constitution and in the constitutional court minimal legitimacy for his design of transitional justice. Thank you very much.